0: Uh, we're carrying on with our series in Hebrews. We're into Hebrews chapter 2. And um, my title for today, if this works, and everything else works, is... A little lag. I thought it wasn't going to work. Is The Greatest Salvation. We're not going to kind of cover this whole title. We're not going to be able to complete the the kind of convers- you know, conversation about the greatest salvation. Because think, I'm right in saying, that this topic is going to be the conversation of the new creation. I think that we will spend eternity as Christians talking about the wonderful marvellousness of Jesus just for eternity. And I don't think we can kind of plumb the depth of it today because we haven't experienced the fullness of it because one day we'll see the kind of consummation of the world and Jesus will come back and he'll rule and he'll reign fully and sin will be, you know, gone and we'll you know, that is what's gonna be it's be that is what it's gonna be like in the new creation. We may not even stumble over our words in the new creation. But that is the greatest salvation is going to be the topic of conversation and worship in the new creation. So we're gonna kind of scratch the surface very lightly this afternoon. However before that I'm going to tell you a brief story about two people in my family. They're my dad and my uncle. Um, they are brothers and as a kind of a family we've always grown up from being little to being less little. We went to the Lake District every Easter for our holidays. We went to Keswick every year apart from one when we went to Windermere for a change then we went back afterwards because we didn't like it as much as Keswick and we went there Every year for like four or five days at Easter, and we loved it. However, before that, my dad's kind of family—so um, my dad and my mum, and my uncle, and my auntie—they went on holiday together now and again, as a, a kind of a thought. And um, yeah, you know, some great stories about them winding each other up. Generally, my uncle winding up my dad—very easy to do—and um, that's where me and my brother get it from, I think. But they went on holiday to the Lake District. I'll try and get on topic now. And they went, and they used to go canoeing together a bit. they were kind of brought up in um, in Leeds, and they used to like going canoeing. And they went canoeing in the Lake District. And my dad, you know, made the canoes because he was, he did like he was a DT teacher all his life. So they made fiberglass canoes and uh, broke them, and dad fixed them and that sort of thing. So they went they went canoeing in the Lake District. That's basically where I'm getting to with this. And uh, they were canoeing along one of the rivers. And at some point, my dad quite likes telling this story, my uncle doesn't, uh, my dad heard some shouting from my uncle, who you know, essentially was just shouting, look, Mick, come and help me. My dad's name's Mick, my uncle's called Chris. I says, Mick, come, come and help me. And my dad's kind of just paddling along, having a lovely time, probably thinking, hmm, I don't even know if I'll look round, because uh, he's kind of annoys him a bit. But he did, he looked round, and there was my uncle, stranded on a rock in the middle of the water in his canoe. Fortunately, we are stranded on a rock because just the other side of the rock was a kind of waterfall, weir-type thing. That so If he'd gone down, he could have, you know, hurt himself, fallen out of his boat, broken the boat that my dad would have then had to mend uh, and he'd have whined until it was done because that's what brothers do. You know, he could have hurt himself. He could have fallen into the, the shark-infested water and been eaten by the alligators at the bottom of the weir. All those sorts of things. Now, the alligators and the sharks aren't real, but the story is. My dad then went, paddled up to him, turned his boat round, My uncle kind of held on and my dad dragged him off to safety. So my dad quite likes the story. My uncle doesn't all that much because uh, he's a sort of helpless damsel in distress in the story. Um, So yeah, that's my little story here this afternoon. And I'm going to read you four verses from Hebrews chapter 2. And you are going to tell me what the link is between my dad and my uncle in their canoes and Hebrews chapter 2. And it's not that two and canoe rhyme. So, beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What is the link between the opening four verses of Hebrews chapter 2 and my dad and my uncle canoeing in the lake district in shark-infested waters? Any ideas? Drifting. It's a good thing that Joan's here. Drifting is a kind of theme of the first few verses here. The the writer says, look, pay more careful attention or you might drift off. I don't know what it was that led to my uncle drifting into a rock, losing his paddle, I would assume, and, you know, I don't know what it was, but he was probably not paying attention. Now, you don't know my uncle, but that is what he's like. You know, he's not always the most careful of what he's doing. Apart from when it comes to money, he you knows exactly where it all is and he knows how much pocket money he gets from my auntie so he has a couple of pounds a week to spend and he normally just saves it because she feeds him and it's fine so anyway not paying careful attention and drifting which ironically I feel I did just then so in Hebrews chapter 2 there is almost a bit of a nautical theme the word in Greek used for drifting I can't remember what the word is but it is the word that describes a boat that has lost its moorings and is just kind of floating off in the water so it's not um, yeah anything else. it's this idea that if you set a boat loose in the water it won't stay still, it'll just gradually float off with the current, wherever the current takes it, however you may be sat there thinking hopefully you are thinking, but you may be thinking that now I'm not certain, but I don't think that the book of Hebrews is a nautical manual, well it isn't this is a massive risk, okay Tried it yesterday, didn't pay off without a few hints. So, if I ask you the question, what is the book of Hebrews really all about? What would you say? From what you've heard so far, or what you may know already, what is the book of Hebrews really a book all about? Yes, excellent. Jesus. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus. So when he's talking about drifting, he's not talking about just boats let loose because you know they don't really need to know about that. He's talking about people whose moorings have come adrift from Jesus. He's talking about people who are kind of, almost without realising it, they're starting to just gently float away from their anchor. I mean, later on in Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as like an anchor. He's a kind of solid person that you can be attached to. This idea that they're drifting from Jesus. And it's not necessarily to to the readers at this point who who may be thinking, you know, this Christianity lark, it's just getting like a massive weight on my neck. I'm going to draw a line in the sand, I'm going to put Christianity that side, and I'm going to put me this side, and that's it. I'm not going to cross that line ever again. It's not necessarily to those readers he's, he's writing at this point with this idea. It's more to those who they kind of think, I can not really sure I need the anchor of Christianity for my life to to work out alright. You know, it kind of gets it's more out of not doing the things that as Christians they kind of know they should. They start to neglect aspects of the faith. Maybe they kind of stop praying or they stop uh, speaking to God. They stop meeting together. Those little temptations of neglect of their Christian life that means they gradually just begin really slowly to drift away. It's more those sort of people that he's talking to. And he, he tries to to make sure that they realise that it's Jesus who they need to be tied onto. It's Jesus who they need uh, for everything. It's him that they can't leave behind, but it's him that they're sort of tempted to leave behind or tempted to unfasten themselves from. I heard a quote this week, and I, I, like, I totally agree with it. It's by a chap in America called John Piper, and he said... And I quote, word for word, he says, human life is a river, and it's a river that leads to hell. And he's saying, look, if you just go about human life without an anchor, the only way, the only end to that river is hell. So ultimately, as um, as the writer of Hebrews sends this letter, he wants them to know that if they kind of chuck away the chain that holds them, to Jesus, they'll float down the river their like, neglect of Jesus will lead them ultimately to hell I mean, yeah, I imagine if you like let go of the anchor on a reasonably calm day it might just seem like a nice little gentle ride for a little bit but gradually you'll realise kind of the shore's just a little bit too far away for you to grab onto and it's at that point when they would kind of look and think actually I wish I hadn't let go because it's now out of reach and the destination of that river, the idea of hell, is just something where nobody wants to end up. It's where no one wants to go. It's the place eternally where God's wrath is going to be poured out. And it's the risk of, of drifting here that it's so easy. It's just so easy for these people he thinks to drift that it is only when they realize they've gone too far that they would kind of notice. And ultimately, drifting in Christian life is a risk for us as well. It can be really easy to maybe gradually begin to neglect some of the things that we used to do and our kind of passion for Jesus can slowly wane that we don't really realise that. But he's saying, look, there is something and you really need to grab onto that something to be safe. And that something is Jesus. So, before we move on, I have a very small Bible reading tip for you when you come across this word, therefore, therefore, in the Bible, always ask yourself this question: Whenever you come across it, um, ask yourself, "What is the therefore, therefore?" Okay, simple, simple question. Uh, what is the therefore, therefore? Because that will help you to kind of unpack whatever's going on at that time. So in this passage, he says, "We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard." So that we do not drift away and normally a therefore kind of implies that something has gone on before therefore we do this so that makes sense so it's kind of it's kind of saying this is a logical argument this is an argument i'm building on this is important i want you to really take note of it that's what the therefore is therefore okay sometimes there's one in in romans uh, in romans chapter 12 paul writes um, just get it right He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So Paul is saying, because of God's mercy, that he's talked about in the previous chapters, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, because of Jesus' sacrifice, therefore, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. So he's kind of saying, look back. Now, look ahead, and this is what we're going to do. So it's kind of building arguments that the writer has. So... In Hebrews, there's a therefore. What is a therefore, therefore? That's an excellent question I hear you ask. So, I'll uh, try and fill in some blanks. Well, simply, from what we've kind of heard in those first four verses already, he goes back to chapter one, because he mentions the angels again, and the angels take up a substantial chunk of chapter one. And in chapter one, he's basically saying, look, Jesus is far better, he's far superior. He's far more glorious. He's far more exciting. He's far more everything than the angels. Therefore, if you allow yourself to drift away from Jesus, you're allowing yourself to drift away from the one who is God. The one that you claim to love and you claim to worship. The one who made the world and the one who holds the keys to eternal life. He is the one you're going to allow yourself to drift away from. And he kind of goes on to say, look, you can't have the God of the Old Testament and the angels who you look back to and you love because of your kind of Jewish heritage. You can't have those but not have Jesus. You have to have all of them or none of them. So it's an all or nothing thing he's trying to say. Look, what you really love, the the God of the Old Testament and, and the angels that mean so much to you, You can't have those unless you have Jesus. And if you kind of try and loosen up on Jesus, all you're doing is loosening up on everything that you say you hold dear. So as we get into some of the verses, the argument that he's given kind of uh, comes through. It says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by the angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he's kind of saying, Look, there is, and and they know this there is a punishment and there is an escape, and that's kind of what you want. And they understood that because their Jewish history tells them that the kind of experience of being being Jews and their family being Jews, they know that God's punishment involves death. Because when they would have, you know, they'd have known about having animals that they had to bring to the temple. They could have had a nice little lamb called, I don't know, Fluffy the lamb that they kept, and they were really careful with the. For a few weeks, you know, looking after it really well, making sure that it was a perfect, spotless lamb. You know, it was just really well looked after. They petted it at night. They made sure it was safe. And then, on a certain day, it would be killed to kind of represent taking the sin of the people, so that they themselves weren't going to be killed. Its blood was spilt, so that theirs didn't need to be. So it could have been a lamb. It could have been a, a dove. It could have been a pigeon. Could have been a goat, it could have been all sorts of different things, but they knew that you know there is a sacrifice of death that is needed to take away sin. They know that God's punishment then involves death. In the old covenant, in the kind of the old way, in the old testament, the old way of doing things, they knew as well that there was loads of different punishments for breaking different laws in the Old Testament. This idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a finger for a finger and a kneecap for a kneecap, whatever it is. It's it's about being being just. So if I, like if I break Ian's foot, the kind of just punishment I deserve is to have my foot broken or a kind of equivalent punishment. So that's the idea. However, it changes very slightly when it's to do with pregnant women. If you do like if you sneeze near a pregnant woman, you are at risk of being judged. You know, if anything happens to a pregnant woman at your hand in the Old Testament, you are really for it because God has a special place in His heart for pregnant women. Um, but apart from that. So kind of beauty, this this is the just punishment. Um, so that they kind of knew that from their history, but in the in the new covenant, the one that Jesus brings about who, through his preaching, through his life and his death and his resurrection, it's different. The punishment in the new covenant for them and for us isn't to do necessarily with different acts that we commit. It's to do with our response to who God says. His son is. So the new covenant is worked around our response to Jesus. The thing is, what's happening for them is they're looking back and thinking, you know, the old covenant that really that really had some strong binds. That was really important. That was brought to us by the angels. Now that is amazing. You know, the angels are really important. They brought it. If something was delivered to you by an angel, just like if you had a knock at the door, you're expecting the post and it was an angel, please sign for this. You know, on the little electronic thing that they have now you'd be amazed at whatever it was so the old covenant the law was brought to them by the angels and they thought this is brought to us by the angels by God's messengers this is brought to us this is really important and they were dead right it was really important so they took like he says in this passage that was delivered to them by the angels he took that as binding however the new testament the new covenant is brought by Jesus by Jesus And the writer wants him to see that what was brought by the angels, he thought that was binding. As soon as God himself appears on the scene to bring the new covenant, how much more binding should that be? Last time, kind of, God sent his message via an angel. This time, God himself turns up and says, this is the message. I am the message. How much more binding should that be? And the new covenant is binding on everyone. It's binding on on them and it's binding on us now. And he goes on to say that the New Testament, the New Covenant salvation is greater than the Old Covenant salvation. Which almost seems a little bit unfair to us because we live in a New Covenant time. We live this side of the cross compared to them. But in the Old Covenant, any time they brought a sheep or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon or or whatever it was they were bringing as a sacrifice, all those things pointed forward to something else, something bigger, something better, something perfect, something complete. But they lived in a time of kind of incompleteness or like uh, the kind of getting ready for what was going to totally and utterly fulfill everything. In the New Covenant, for the readers of Hebrews and for us who are reading Hebrews, we live in a time where we can look back and we can see that all the things the Old Covenant pointed towards was Jesus. He's saying, look, how much greater is this salvation now when we look to Jesus and we see that actually we don't need to go through all these different like rearing and killing of animals to sort out our sin. Our sin is dealt with finally, completely, wholly by this man, Jesus. So the salvation Jesus offers is greater than because it's finished that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to trying to pour out to these people he's trying to pour out his heart saying look this is just so much better because it is finished it is complete therefore he says listen he says we must pay more careful attention and this is the kind of thing you want to say to children or was said to me a lot when I was little, like like, listen or pay attention or be careful you know, very rarely did um, but the writer says pay more careful attention that is his kind of call in these few verses he's saying look, Jesus is amazing so prick up your ears and listen to what he has to say that is the call of these few verses when you kind of boil it all down and you get the, the essence of it, he's saying I want you to listen to Jesus, he has done everything that is needed for your salvation and he wants to speak but in our life we make we make plenty of time to listen to all sorts of different things we make time to uh, to listen to like football scores people you like to see people will rush home because it's nearly match of the day because they want to like find the comfy spot on the sofa before the other person in the house wants to find the comfy spot on the, like the second most comfy spot on the sofa so they can watch match of the day and they kind of know all the, the different players and all the different teams uh, the red team and the blue team and is there a green team? Green team and you know whatever the teams are I don't know but you know they spend hours learning all the different people's names and you know where they come from and what their mother's name is and how long they've had three toes or whatever it is they learn all these special things about them and it goes for other sports as well so like I think I've told you before that when I was younger, me and a couple of friends used to really enjoy mountain biking. I could tell you, this is really sad, all the Shimano part numbers for pretty much everything they made to do with mountain biking, and then worked out what it was for road biking, because it was only a couple of like different letters per part. Which is really sad, but I would like just kind of picked that up from what I was reading in the magazines. Um, I couldn't tell you now, because they'll have all moved on by then. But it probably wouldn't take me that long to work it out. So if you want to know any bike parts, let me know. But other people spend time they... They listen to it. They put loads of time to listening to music. They may absolutely adore music. Somebody brings out a new CD or a new album or something. You know, they'll rush out, they'll buy it or they'll download it, preferably legally off the internet and they'll, like, listen to it in their car. They'll put it in until it boils them to tears. But they love to listen to it. Other people, you know, make sure that they watch the news every day. You know, they make sure they keep up with the news all the time. They, they let it pour into their ears through um, through the telly, through the radio or the, like, go onto the BBC webpage and see what's going on or the newspaper my grandpa used to like the news okay? he used to really love watching the news and I think he was kind of mid-80s um, when he got Sky TV so that he could watch Leeds play football and fight that's what they tend to do um, and we were around there one time and I, you know, I'll never forget this and he had the remote control and he was kind of trying to work out how to use Sky because it was newfangled and all he could ever find was the Simpsons um, but he was going through and he found the news. And he, so he was watching the news. And we were all kind of sat with him watching the news. And we were watching it for about half an hour. And they kind of then said something about us, the, the story. And he said, Hang on a minute. I haven't they said that already? Like, Grandpa, this is news 24. This is a 24-hour news program. They'll just keep telling you the same news until something else exciting happens in the world. He didn't realize that was, there was a 24-hour news program and he just thought they were going to repeat it. he wasn't getting his money's worth. But people love, that's my point, people love listening to the news. People make time to listen to the news. People go out and buy like new books by their favorite authors. When like, the Harry Potter stuff was happening, people were like queuing up for hours outside bookshops so they could get that. People spent time listening and talking with their, their family and friends. Um, we were just in Oxford well, in Vista this week near Oxford, not quite as posh, um, and seeing some friends that are doing the same course that I'm doing. And we were up to like half past two in the morning chatting about, about different things, and it was really good. But people spend time by like ages, don't they, chatting with family and friends. But the challenge that this passage gives us is actually how much time in our daily life, no matter how good and and different all those things are that we enjoy doing, we enjoy we enjoy listening to, we enjoy spending our time doing How much time do we kind of carve out to listen to what Jesus has to say? Because that's what this passage tells us to do. It's what he's telling the readers to do. He's saying, look, what you need to do is you need to listen to Jesus. So how much time do we make in our daily lives to listen to Jesus? And sometimes, we kind of think that prayer can be listening to, to what God has to say, but sometimes prayer can just become... God, this is what I would like. Next thing. And we kind of go off and do our other things. And one of the guys that I saw this weekend, he was saying that sometimes he goes for a morning jog, mental. But he goes for a morning jog before everyone else in the house is up. And he said, sometimes it's great, because I'll go out and I'll I'll say, God, what do you want to say to me today? And other times, I just think, how far is it home? You know. So sometimes he'll spend time listening to God another times, He won't, because he just wants to get home. So the moral of that story is, don't go for a jog. But he says... Listen to Jesus. And the reason the writer says listen to Jesus is because God is speaking. God isn't silent. He wants people to listen to him and to hear what it is he has to say. The writer says, look, Jesus spoke this salvation. He said, this salvation was first announced by the Lord, by by Jesus. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So Jesus said it. Then other people told that message to the guy who's writing this book. And God also backed up what those people were saying by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit that were distributed however God wanted them to be. So they heard God, they heard Jesus speak, and the people that heard him went on and told other people, and they heard that. And now this is what would be that's first. This is like a third generation message of Jesus here. So somebody heard Jesus at first. Somebody who heard Jesus told somebody else. That's the writer. And the writer is now telling these people about Jesus. That's become confusing. So that message just gets passed on by people who have heard what God is doing. So Jesus starts off and he talks about his salvation. Others told of it as well. And God testified to it. Basically, God is really trying to get us to listen to him and he's not doing it in a way that's kind of difficult to hear, it's not like you know your kind of deaf uncle or auntie or great uncle whoever it is in your family who's deaf, who you kind of he goes, what? and they can't hear you, God is not kind of talking in a way that is difficult to hear he's not talking with a whisper when God talks to us he gives us his son and it is Jesus who is speaking it is Jesus who speaks through the bible it is Jesus who we read of it is Jesus that God wants us to listen to you, and he's saying that that salvation escape from God's wrath escape from an eternity of of suffering God's wrath that redemption being made right that being adopted into God's family being justified in God's sight knowing that our sins are definitely dealt with righteousness being made not just kind of not bad but being made perfect and good all of these things come from God and they come because of Jesus. These are the things that God wants to tell us and wants us to hear. And our response to God isn't one of just trying to think, that's a good thing, I'll have that, that's a good thing, I'll have that, that's a good thing, I'll have that, like supermarket sweep. Um, It's one of, our response to God shouldn't be a grabbing, but it should be a kind of delight to sit and hear what it is that God has to say about us and to us actually, the truth of the matter is really when you come down to it if you're a Christian what God wants to say to you is that you are my child and I love you with the most amazing love that there has ever been. That is what God wants to say to us if we believe and we trust in him because that's the truth. He says you're my child who I love and no matter what else is going on in your life no matter if you're scruffy or you know you're not very clever or or whatever it is he says you are my child who I love and I'm really pleased with you see God if kind of if we knew that that's what God was going to say to us we'd be really keen to spend time listening to him because there's nothing better for our souls than to hear God say I love you but the difficulty is sometimes God might go on to say something else because we know that God loves us so much that he comes and he meets us where we are. If we're in, you know, if we're in a difficult situation, if before we, before we met Jesus, if our life was a mess, whatever it is, Jesus meets us wherever we are in life. He loves us that much that he will come and meet us, whatever the situation, whatever country we're in, whatever it is. But he also he loves us too much to leave us like that. He wants to shape us and turn us into more and more the character of Jesus. So God will say to us, you're my child who I love. But I want to probe a bit about this issue. I want to kind of work by the Spirit to say, actually, is that something that a perfect child of mine should be doing? But the the opposite to this is also, if you're not a Christian here today, God isn't able to say those things to you. Because if you're not a Christian, you're still in your sins. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you a perfect child of his because your sins are still yours. They're not dealt with by Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you're still on that the river of human life that leads to hell and you haven't got an anchor that is Jesus. But if that is you, there's the simplest option of not being a Christian, wanting to become a Christian. is actually just to say, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. I have got a problem that I can't deal with. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to put my life in Jesus' hands. I want him to take all my sin. When Jesus went to the cross, it was a fine... Jesus said, it is finished when he was on the cross. It's not something that is kind of not quite finished and there's going to be some upgrades and some, like, beta products put out there for salvation, like 1.3. It was dealt with at the cross. Jesus said, it's finished. That means all of our sin can be placed on him. It can be dealt with finally. And we can be given Jesus righteousness if we don 't know God, the thing to do is agree with him and say, "I am a sinner, and I want my sin to be forgiven i don 't want to spend my life in the, you know, in the the river of human life that leads to hell. I want to be with you forever There's a guy who is a Puritan um, called John Owen, and we were on my course we were asked to read one of his books. Um, I didn't read all of it. It's about the Holy Spirit, but basically he just repeats himself over and over again about the Holy Spirit. But this is a quote of his, not from that book, um, from someone else. And John Owen says, he was a Puritan, and the Puritans were big on, like, affections and stuff like that, but, but I can imagine him almost crying as he writes these words. He says, can any man perish more justly than they who refuse to be saved? He saying, look, if you've heard the message of Jesus and you don't turn to him, then... It's your own own fault. You have the option to be saved because Jesus has gone to the cross. He's taken the sin of the whole world. On the cross it was dealt with. He died. He was separated from his father. That eternal relationship of perfect love was broken so that our sin could be dealt with, that God's wrath could be appeased. And then Jesus was brought back to life because God was satisfied. God was pleased with what Jesus had done. And then later on, Jesus ascends into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high because his work is completed. He is our great prophet, priest and king who's gone into heaven. He's sat down by the Father because his sacrifice was good enough. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to listen and he wants us to hear, are our lives anchored in Jesus and what God says? Or are we drifting? Or if we're worried about the fact that we're drifting, what do we need to do? We need to come back to Jesus. We need to to ask God to forgive us for our sins, to to make sure that we're anchored in what it is that God says, not what other people say. And not to neglect God's words, not to neglect prayer, the things that make it really easy for us to drift. The good news is, if we are drifting, or if we feel like that sometimes, the good news is that God hasn't changed. The God that we maybe once really passionately loved, that, that we thought was just, The best thing since sliced bread, even though he existed before sliced bread, is still that same God who is marvellous and glorious. And actually, we can get excited about him again. And Jesus is the only way for us to do that. So I'll pray and then we'll sing our final song. Father, we thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Father, we thank you that you spoke to us so fully and so completely and so finally and so amazingly in Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is the one who brought the, the final message and the one who the final message is all about. Father, we thank you that in him our sins are forgiven, that they can, they're just completely dealt with, they're separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Father, we thank you as well that we receive his righteousness, that we're not just made not bad, that we're made good like him. Father, we thank you that we can be adopted into your family and you can say of us that we are your children and you love us. Father, we thank you as well that there is an anchor for our souls. Father, we thank you that um, that Jesus can hold us steady can hold us firm and Father I pray that you'll help us and um, if any here that feel like they've been you know a time of kind of not really being too fixed on you Father we pray that you would help us to kind of refix our lives around Jesus and what he says and what he has done for us Father we thank you that what you speak is true and Father if there are people here that don't know you Father we ask that they would agree with you and they would confess their sins and they would know your love and your forgiveness poured out in their hearts. Father, we thank you for this time today as well. Father, we thank you that we're going to sing some great truths about you now. And Father, we pray that you will bless us and help us to go on with you, loving and knowing you more and more. Amen.